you know, my, my dad is a, is a pretty big guy. He's, well, he's not real tall, but he's kind of a brawny guy. And he played linebacker when he was in high school, had some prospects for playing at some Division One teams, and then he hurt his leg and wasn't able to go. But they used to call him, as a middle linebacker at Evergreen High School, they called him the Beast. I mean, he just is kind of a, a brawny uh, looking man, and, and even today, even at 67 years old, he's still uh, a tough looking guy and a tough uh, working, hard working guy. And, and one thing that my dad has always loved to do, like if, if uh, uh, he were here today with JJ or Isabella, he, he loves to take kids and just throw them around. And he would take them and just, he, he loved to grab some random kid at church and terrify their mom to death just by throwing them up in the air and catching them. And he did that with us all the time, too, as, as uh, young kids. And, and he would remind us, you know, if we ever had anything to, terrifying or we were scared of how he was throwing us around or, you know, he wanted us to jump to him or something like that, he would remind us, I'll catch you. You know, I, he, he rested a lot of his assurance on the fact that he was a big, strong man and that if you jumped into his arms, he was going to catch you. Well, one of my earliest memories, I probably was three years old, four years old at the most. We, you know, Beelin Park used to have a, a concrete pool, a huge concrete pool, and it had a high dive on it. Y'all remember that? If you ever went over there and uh, I don't know how tall the high dive was, 10 feet, eight feet, I don't know, but at, at three or four years of age, my dad got me up there and I would jump off of the high dive. And uh, we were there one, one night swimming and I can remember like it was yesterday, even though I don't remember anything else from that age, I climbed up that high dive and normally my dad was right behind me. And I can remember getting to what I felt like, I think was the top step and I slipped. And I fell and landed flat of my back on the concrete uh, in, at Beelan Park. And I remember looking up at my dad. And I didn't feel the pain. I didn't feel any of that. But what I remember is feeling the disappointment of looking up at my brawny dad standing over me and thinking, why didn't you catch me? You know, <laughs> Like you've caught me every other time but you didn't catch me in this one moment that I needed it. Um, now, my dad's caught me every other time since then. I will, I will say that. But we, you know, we humans, we love promises. We love the idea of promises. We, in fact, there are companies that publish calendars and the little uh, books and, and the little daily calendars to, as reminders of promises. We put them on our pillows. We put them on our Facebook walls. We write them on our mirrors. We love promises. And we love promises, the promises of our leaders, too. If you think about it, most political campaigns, that's all they are. In fact, that's all they really are is just promises. They're not promises kept. They're promises made. But most political campaigns center around a core set of promises that the politician publishes on their website or puts out in a mailer that they pledge to enact when they're elected. We love to hold others to the promises that they make. I'm sure you probably have promises that you've held people to that they've let you down on. 
Um, it, you know, if a friend, it, it can be something even as small as when a friend tells you they're going to be there. If they promise that they will meet us at 5 p.m., we judge that friend based on whether he or she keeps it or whether they are a few minutes late. The truth is we love promises. We love the idea of promises. But really, we are horrible at keeping promises. And that goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. If you remember, as we've worked through the book of Genesis, remember that God established a covenant with Adam and Eve that they should have dominion over all the earth and that they could eat of every tree of the garden except for one. And you know the story. This covenant was a simple call to obedience. And yet Adam and Eve chose to break covenant with God by seeking the dominion and the power of Satan. God made a covenant with Cain just a chapter over in Genesis chapter 4 by marking him and promising that if anyone came after him that he would serve vengeance on that person sevenfold. And then Cain goes on to build a city and to build walls to protect himself because he didn't trust in the promises of God. Even Abraham, the man of faith, we'll see in the very next chapter that we get to next week or next time we meet, that Abraham couldn't wait on the promise of God. And so he was convinced by his wife to sleep with her maidservant and have a child by her. The nation of Israel was given the commands of God and promised to obey everything that God required in his law. And yet they failed within just a few days by breaking the first two commandments that God had given them. You see, we humans, we love promises. We just can't seem to deal and to bear with the consequences. And yet we find in Scripture that God repeatedly keeps his promises even when his people fail miserably. In fact, we find that God loves to keep his promises. We, God seems to gain the most glory from making a promise that seems impossible to keep. And we find such a promise in Genesis chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's not a very long chapter, but we'll read the whole chapter because it's all one story. And then I'll pray. And then I want to look at four truths that we find in this passage. So if you're there in Genesis chapter 15, read along with me. It says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you 
this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Gergesites, uh, and the Jebusites. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today knowing that your promises are true and that your word is everlasting. Lord, that you say and you do exactly what you have promised. So Father, forgive us for forgetting your promises. Forgive us for not being patient and not waiting on your promises to be fulfilled. Lord, give us the assurance of hope. Give us the hope of eternal life that is found only in your Son. And may we be as Abraham, the one who trusted in you and that trust was counted as righteousness. Father, bless us now as we study from your word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So the first thing that I want you to notice is look with me again at verse 1, and I want you to notice two truths that are found just in this very first verse. The first thing that I want you to notice is that this verse starts with the phrase, after these things. Now remember, Abram has just come from a great victory and from being blessed by Melchizedek, the king of Salem. We saw that in chapter 14. And the promise that God made with Abram here is directly related to that victory and that blessing that Abram received in chapter 14. You see, the victory and the blessing were real world outcomes of the promise that God made to Abram back in chapter 12, that he would bless him and that he would make him a blessing. Now, God is going to reiterate that those same promises and other aspects of that promise in that he made in chapter 12 here again in chapter 15. Also notice in verse 1, there are three phrases that are used right here that are never again used in the book of Genesis. 
And it's significant that these phrases are used here. First, this is the only place in Genesis where we find the phrase, the word of the Lord. Now, this phrase is used extensively throughout the rest of the Old and the New Testament. But it's a powerful thing that the only place that we find it in the book of Genesis is right here where God makes an unconditional covenant with Abram. The word of the Lord is used uh, to refer both to the commands of God and to the prophecies of God. In the first five books of the Bible, the, the phrase um, the word of the Lord is used to refer to the commandments. So you'll find like in Numbers that it says the word of the Lord came to Moses and said, do these things. So it relates to the commands that God gives to the Israelites. But in the prophetic books of the Bible, you find that it is used to speak of the prophecies. So in Isaiah, for example, it says that the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and God said, prophesy against so-and-so. And so it's very important to understand that God's word creates things. It created the heavens and the earth in Genesis chapter 1. It created the storms of judgment in Genesis chapter 6. And now it creates a nation from one old man in Genesis chapter 15. I want you to understand this because we often have a wrong view of prophecy, and especially as it relates to the, the Bible. Oftentimes, the way we view prophecy as it is as if this, this seer, this prophet, is kind of feeling the railroad, so to speak, speak and, and listening for the signs and watching for the signs, and he divines he sees what's going to come to, to pass. And that's the way pagans viewed their prophets, is that they were, they were receiving some uh, news flash, so to speak, about what would come. And so we look oftentimes at the prophecies of the Old Testament, and we say that that's kind of what God's doing. He's seeing out into the future. He's seeing what people will do, and he's telling his people about it. But that's not the way biblical prophecy works. You see, God's word creates things. And when God decrees a thing to come to pass, it will come to pass. When God prophesies of something that will come, it's not that he's saying, telling you about something that would come to be if, even if he never said it, but rather he is telling you what his purpose and plan is in the world and in history. God says it, and it will come to pass. And that's very important for us to understand, particularly here, because God is telling Abram something that will happen for which there is no ability within Abram for it to happen. Remember, Sarah is barren. He's old. There's no way that this can happen. And yet God says it, and it will come to be. The other two words that are only used here are the words vision and the word shield. The word vision is used here to speak of prophetic visions. So Abram is receiving this prophecy of things that will come to pass. And the last word, shield, is a popular word in the Psalms, as we've already seen, that God is a shield to those who trust in him. 
And God is a shield to Israel in the Psalms. This word's appropriate because God has just given Abram and 300 men victory over a great army. So the third truth that I want you to see from the text is found in verse 6. It says there that after God had made this initial promise to Abram that his offspring will be numerous as the stars in the sky, it says that uh, says of Abram that he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now this little phrase that we have here in verse 6 is, is very important for us to notice. It's pivotal to the rest of redemptive history. In fact, Paul uses this phrase over and over again to refer to faith. This little phrase tells us how we obtain righteousness before God. And so I want you to notice, first of all, what it says about Abram. It says that Abram believed God. But what does it mean when it says that he believed? He believed the promise that God would cause offspring to come from him. Now bear in mind, Abram has no evidence of this happening other than God's past faithfulness in giving him victory. He and his wife have never been able to conceive, and there is no evidence that they will ever conceive, and yet he believes the promise nonetheless. Also, the idea of believing here is not what we typically mean these days. When we talk about somebody believing something, like I believe in a scientific fact, or I believe that we did this in in 1942 or whatever, we usually mean it to say we know something or we accept the facts about something. But that's not what biblical believing is. Biblical believing is believing that changes who you are. Biblical believing changes the way that you live, the direction of your life. It changes everything. Remember, Abram has already uprooted his whole family, moved from where his father and mother grew up to a land that was uh, hundreds of miles away because of the promises of God. Biblical believing changes everything. So finally, notice that it says that his believing was counted to him as righteousness. Now that word counted there is an accounting term. In fact, it's translated in other places in the Bible as classified or designed or planned. So God takes the faithfulness of Abram and he accounts it as righteousness. He counts that faith, faith, that believing as righteousness. So the last thing that I want you to notice, starting in verse 12, is that God reiterates this promise by doing what they call cutting a covenant with Abram. He has Abram cut several animals in half. Now, I don't know how that worked. I, I know it sounds gory, and it was gory. Um, but he cuts these animals in half, and he lays them out in, a, in their halves in a pathway. And now this seems weird to us because we don't do this these days. But this was actually a very popular thing to do in Old Testament times. In fact, the reason a covenant is said a cutting of a covenant is because oftentimes what would happen is a king would come to his people and he would make certain promises. 
And the, the people represented by their elders would make promises back to the king. And they would cut these animals in half and they would lay them out and the king and the people's representatives would walk between these animal halves because what that meant was if the king doesn't keep his promise and the people or the people don't keep their promise, then what happened to these animals will happen to the participants that don't keep their promise. It was a very visible, very gory, very bloody sign that the covenant could not be broken. And that if it was broken, the condition for breaking the covenant was death. Now here's the fascinating thing about this particular scene. And I don't want you to miss that. this. I want you to notice, does Abram walk through the halves of the animals? No. God puts Abram to sleep. Abram isn't doing a thing in this covenant. God has him cut the animals in half, sit there and protect the animal pieces from the buzzards, but when the time comes to make the covenant, God puts Abram to sleep and God himself walks through the animal halves. God makes this covenant by himself. And say, he says, in effect, that God himself should die if he does not keep the covenant that he makes with Abram. But God has kept his covenant to Abraham. And this covenant that he made with Abraham is extended to everyone who by faith believes the promises of God. The reason that little phrase in, in verse 6 is such good news is because everyone who believes God has received righteousness through Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26 says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was, so, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the guarantee of the promises that God has made to those who trust in him. Jesus, in his death, died a covenant death. He died the death that we deserved. We all, by our sin, have rebelled against the covenant that God has made with humanity. And yet God, uh, in Jesus, offered the right sacrifice that was required for that covenant. It is why, as we're going to see in just a second, in the Lord's Supper, God, Jesus says, I am making a, made a new covenant in my blood through his death on the cross. Jesus has defeated death by rising again as well. And because he is risen, he has kept the covenant and will keep the covenant for all who trust in him. You see, friend, 
you have never known anyone who can keep their promises completely. But God can, and God does. God has secured an eternal covenant for you and promises every spiritual blessing through Jesus Christ. Turn to Jesus today and trust in him. Enter into the only promise that you will ever need, the promise of eternal fellowship with God. Brothers and sisters, as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are the completion of the promise that God made to Abraham way back in Genesis chapter 15. Paul says in Romans 4, 16, that everyone who trusts in Christ is a child of Abraham through faith. The church is what God had in mind when he promised that Abraham would have innumerable offspring. Like Abraham, we are called to faithful obedience. You know, the interesting thing is, is as we'll see coming up in chapter 16 and 17 and on into 18 and 19, is that God made this promise and Abram still had to wait 25 years before it was fulfilled. God's promise is yet to come completely for us as well. He has promised us that resurrection is coming. He has promised us that new life and eternal life is coming. And yet that hasn't been completed until Christ returns. And so one of the things that we do as believers is we wait. We wait faithfully. And you know, one of the beautiful things to me about Friendship Baptist Church is that we're here in a little small town. We're here as just a few people. And what do we do? We're waiting. We're waiting on the promise to be fulfilled. We're being faithful, like Abram, who stood over the carcasses of those animals and waved buzzards away so that God would fulfill his covenant promises. The Abraham who waited for God's blessing so that he would have a son. We're waiting. What do we do while we wait? We remain faithful. One of the ways that we remain faithful is by keeping his signs. By observing the commands that he told us to observe. And one of those commands we find set before us in the Lord's Supper. This here that we have set before us is a sign of the covenant that God has made in Jesus Christ. It, Jesus says that his body and his blood are represented by these elements that are before us. And so as we wait... We wait with an expectant hope that God will fulfill his promises because we are reminded with simple bread and with simple juice that God is faithful. Let's pray and then we'll enter into our time of communion. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your promises. Lord, we know that your promises are sure. And so, Father, as we take this bread and we take this cup, may you bless us and may you remind us of the promises that you have made to us. That this life is not all there is. And that the death that we face is not an end, but only the, the assurance of a beginning that will last for all of eternity. Father, help us to hope and to trust 
in that promise that is to come, knowing that you have been faithful and you will continue to be faithful to us. I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.